So last week we looked at um, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 through 28. And we discussed for the most part last week the atonement. We talked about what was in the cup, uh, what was in the baptism that Jesus was referring to here, and how the uh, Calvinistic interpretation of the cup and the baptism does not make sense in a lot of these passages that, were, that we went through last week. We went through the whole cup council of scripture and it comes to this cup and this baptism and what is contained in it that it's not God's wrath that he pours out in the sun or makes his son drink or immerses his son in baptizo. It's a cup of man suffering. Uh, man is the one who beat and bruised and crucified and scourged and, scourged and mocked. They're the ones who put Jesus Christ to death. They're the ones that brought suffering into his life. And we talked about uh, this idea, of the whole one of the whole reasons why Calvinists use this hermeneutic that this is must be God's wrath because you know Jesus was under such distress in his heart and under such suffering in his heart. You know, he thought about what was about to happen, and their their reasoning behind that is, well, it couldn't been man suffering because you know there's been people in the past who've have gone to the death with joy in their heart, and you know Jesus Jesus wouldn't be distressed about it. But what they don't understand is that Jesus is the creator of the world, and he's enduring the wrath of his own creation. Um, he had great sorrow in his heart for them. This is his own people, the Jewish people, whom he he uh, who did his father picked as a chosen people and they had all the miracles and all the signs and all the wonders and all the things he just did when he was on earth and they still reject, reject, reject the greatest form of rejection that you could ever possibly see was found in Jesus Christ and that's why he had such great suffering such great distress, not because of the physical pain he was going to go through although that was great, I'm sure we also talked about how the fact that as I read stories of martyrs, and we've read them here in this fellowship, they seem to have some extra portion of grace to go through it. I don't see that in Jesus' account. And so the great distress, physical distress and discomfort and pain he went through was probably greater than the other person because his father had lifted his hand of protection off of him. And that's why he said on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Out of his own distress, his own anguish in his heart. Not because his father poured out his wrath on him, which would make no sense, according to the scriptures you read last week. We saw how the baptism and the cup were synonymous, and then the hour that had come was synonymous with both those things, and the distress that he went through in regards to these things. And we looked at the, at the atonement, whether it was limited, and how the sufficiency of the atonement was universal and unlimited. But the efficiency of the atonement, those who receive the benefits of what Christ secured on the cross is only is only for some. It's limited. Those are the many the scripture talks about. The scripture talks about all when it comes to the cross and all that God's love, it's talking about the sufficiency of the atonement. How it can it has the possibility of benefiting all men and that God genuinely offers it to all men. But it's only those who receive it who receive the benefits of it. 
And we saw that from last week from Scripture. We went through many of the Scriptures talking about the benefits of it. We even went through Isaiah 53, went to the, the Tuagent version of that, talked about that quite a bit. And uh, we even we went to the Hebrew too, and talked about how that even makes sense, and how in Isaiah 53 it says, smitten by God, smitten by Elohim. Elohim does not always mean God. It can mean uh, people in governmental positions, people in authority, mighty ones which would make plenty of sense in light of what we found in the New Testament, of who actually beat him and bruised him. It was the governmental officials, the Jewish people, who arrested him, they delivered him to the government of the Gentiles, and they beat him and bruised him. And even the government of the, of the Jews wanted to say, let his blood be upon us and our people. They're willing to take that upon themselves. So hopefully this is all making sense for you when it comes to the atonement. Hopefully you're getting it and you won't be deceived by the twisting of scripture that some people do even though they may do it with good intentions and this week we're only going to go through six verses and this is verses 29 to 34 let's go ahead and read that now as they went out of Jericho a great multitude followed him and behold two blind men sitting by the road when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. And the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Okay, we're going to look at the Mark and Luke uh, account of this as well, and I want you to uh, have your detective eyes on, so to speak, and want you to look at the differences. And if there are differences, whether there's a contradiction or whether we need to reconcile some things or not. So let's go to Mark 10, verse 46. And then we'll go to Mark 10, starting with Now when they came to Jericho, now they came to Jericho, as they went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The men warned him to be quiet, and he cried out all the more, son of David. But Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. But Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, and your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight, followed Jesus, and followed Jesus on the road. Okay, so just comparing Matthew and Mark, do you see any differences between the two? extra detail he gave them. Okay. The name, and the name of his father. It was Bartimaeus. We'll call him Bart. Bart, the son of Timaeus. So Bart was named here. Is there a is there a second person named here? Two blind men in Matthew. One in Mark. Yes. Okay. He said Rabboni. That's right. Yes. This means great one. Or my teacher. Rabbi's teacher. Um, so you see that. What else? Do you see anything else different there? 
Okay. Bear away, your faith has made you well. Alright. Anything else? Well, you have to look at it for yourself, so. Okay. Okay, so we see at both situations there's blind men. Well, there's blind men in Matthew. Blind man and Mark. Is that a contradiction? called telescoping, okay? There's telescoping going on on both. Telescope means you're giving more details. You think about a telescope, you're looking up into the sky, you're seeing it closer, you're seeing more details of the moon than you would if you just looked at your, your naked eye. And so Mark's telescoping a little bit, and so is Matthew. Matthew telescopes in the sense that he talks about two people. So he gives the extra person that Mark didn't talk about. But then Mark gives the name of one of them, Bartimaeus. Now it doesn't say there was only one. Mark just only mentions one of them, okay? Um, it also says in verse 50 of Mark 10, it says, throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So that's another extra detail you have there. And so you see these things. And um, you even have the crowd. I don't think that's mentioned in Matthew 10. Uh, the crowd uh, tells him that Jesus is calling for him. And be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. So the crowd was against him at first, and the crowd was on his side. Okay, let's go to Luke 18. Let's see if we see any differences here between Luke and Matthew or Mark and Matthew and Mark. Verse 35. And this is very important for you to do because there's going to be people in the world who are going to claim there's contradictions in the Bible when they see different accounts of the same story. Uh, but we've talked about this before. If, if me and Brother John are out preaching, we see we have a fight happen between some sinners at the Super Bowl this weekend. And the cops asked to be witnesses. Maybe John was 100 feet away from me. He may tell the cop different details than I do. He may mention things I don't mention. Uh, I may mention an extra person that he didn't see because he was on the other side. Uh, there's different things that are going to be taken in perspective here. If, you, if you're sitting at a, a corner, you know, probably Kevin Stab like to go hold their banners on a corner sometimes. If they saw a car accident at that corner, they may see a different thing than someone on the other side of the other corner, perpendicular to them, is going to see. And doesn't mean either group is lying. Either seeing different details, and then all the details don't contradict. We have no problem. We have credible witnesses on both sides. Okay, Luke 18 verse 35. But it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who went before him warned him that he should be quiet. And he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight, your faith has made you well. Immediately he was
But verse 35, Luke 18 says he's coming near Jericho. Uh, and then Matthew 20, verse 29 says that it went out of Jericho. And then Mark 10, in verse 46, it says that now they came to Jericho as they went out of Jericho. Okay. So how are we going to reconcile this? Yes. There is an Old Testament Jericho, and there is a New Testament Jericho. There were two Jerichos. Okay? So when Jesus passed through the first Jericho, he was leaving that first Jericho, the Old Testament Jericho, which is no longer being inhabited. It's still not inhabited at this point in time. He was leaving that, and in between that and the New Testament Jericho, which we see talked about most times, is about half a mile. But he's leaving, this great multitude leaving the Old Testament Jericho, they're coming near the New Testament Jericho, Bartimaeus and his friend, who we don't know his name, who's probably being actually being talked about in Luke 18. Some people would say Luke 18 is talking about Bart, but I think he's actually talking about the other blind man. Besides the fact, besides that, they're in between both Jerichos. Okay? And what I want to share with you now is some, some stuff I found out about Jericho in my study of this situation. And I think it'll, it'll build up your faith a little bit and encourage you uh, to trust the Word of God even more. <clears throat> okay, let me give you some facts about Jericho from the Bible. I'm sure most of you know the story of Jericho, uh, but I just want to review it with you a little bit here and give you some facts regarding it. Fact number one about Jericho from the Bible. The walls were destroyed by God after the Israelites obeyed. Um, and you can read about this in Joshua chapter 6. Okay. Um, now these walls were great and mighty walls. Uh, walking around Jericho, shouting, blowing the horn, uh, the ram's horn is not going to knock a wall down, is it? No. Not a natural sense. Not going to happen. Um, but God required them to do this in order for the walls to fall down, correct? If they hadn't have walked around Jericho once a day for six days, and then the seventh day walked around it seven times and blew the horn and shouted, as God commanded them to, would the walls have fallen down? There's a good parallel here when it comes to salvation. When it comes to salvation, your obedience to God does not earn you, does not make God save you, does not earn you the blood of Jesus, does not earn you salvation or forgiveness of sins. But your obedience is required in order for God to save you. In order for God to cleanse you and forgive you. It's like 1 John chapter 1, verse 5-7 through 7 says, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. We claim to have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay. There's a great parallel here, and this is talked about in Hebrews 11. You know, this thing they did, this obedient act they did of, of doing what God, you know, it looked foolishness. So obedient thing that they did did not make the walls fall down. But in doing what God did, God made the walls fall down. It was a cause 
in effect. You understand? But they're they're doing that to make it happen. It's just what God told me. If you do this, this is what something they must do in order for the walls to fall down. It's something every sinner must do in order for God to forgive them and cleanse them. But they're doing that doesn't earn that. They're doing that makes God do what he promised he would do. So that's why salvation is of the Lord. So the, the walls were destroyed by God after the Israelites obeyed. It's Joshua chapter 6. Part of the wall couldn't have been destroyed because Rahab's house was on it. Let's go to Joshua 2. I'm going to read. see another good parallel here when it comes to salvation, obedience, the blood of Jesus, and this story. Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 8. This is the spies had already come to Rahab. She had already lied to the people that they weren't there. And they were up on the roof. It says in verse 8 of Joshua 2, Now before they lay down, let's talk about the two spies, two Israelite spies, they came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did we rem there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, as I have shown you kindness, that you also show kindness to my father's house, and give me a true token, and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that I have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our life's for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, it sh and it shall be, when the Lord has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. And she let, down, let them down by a rope to the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. Okay, so you see that in verse 15. Her house was on the city wall, she dwelt on the wall. So if, and you're going to see here in a second where they were going to stay when the Israelites came. He said to them, Get to the mountain, let the pursuers meet you, hide there three days until the pursuers have returned, afterward you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of your, yours which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So shall it be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head, if a hand is laid on him. If you tell the business business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you have made us swear. Then she said, According to your word, so be it. He sent them away, and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. Okay, so what we see here is her house is along the wall. Um, so therefore, part of the wall couldn't have fallen because then the people in the house would have died. Okay? Now, the falling of the wall is whose part? The Israelites or God's part? That's God's part. 
But after the walls were knocked down, we'll see here in a few minutes in Joshua 6, they went in there and killed the rest of the Marian people. So that's the Israelites part. They see that scarlet thread, that scarlet rope on the house. They're not to touch people in the house. Now what does that remind you of? The Passover. And why is it scarlet too? Amazing that it's scarlet. Just like the blood. And so if people were in the house, they were going to be safe. The wall would not collapse where that part of the house is. The people would not be attacked if they were in the house. But they're outside of the house. They were not going to be safe. Let me ask you the question again. These people who were in the house, did they have a choice in the matter of whether that part of the wall fell down? That's God's part. But when it came to them getting in the house, now they went to a different house on a different part of the wall. Not that every house is on the wall, no, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that. But if they went to a different house on a different part of the wall, would they have been saved? If they would have went to a house that wasn't part of the wall, that didn't have the red uh, rope on it, would they have been saved? So there's something they had to do. They had to get in the house of salvation where the scarlet rope was. Otherwise, they would have died. They would have perished. They would have received the judgment of God like the rest of Jericho. We see in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 20, this is talking about the wall falling down here. Let's just read it. So the people, the Israelites, shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, that the wall fell down flat. Now this, this word that says wall that fell down flat in Hebrew literally means fell beneath itself. Fell beneath itself. Now, I would imagine that the, the translators, when they're translating this, probably didn't understand what that meant. That's probably why they translate the way they did. But the wall fell beneath itself, is what it literally means in the Hebrew. Okay, and we'll get to more of that, why, it's, why that makes sense here in a few minutes. Okay? And then it says, Then the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him they took in the city. So they went up into the city. Okay? And, um, and then we see in verse 24 that they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. That's what the Lord told them to do. Don't take anything but the silver, the gold, the bronze, and the iron. And they burned everything else. And then we see in Joshua 6.26 that Joshua said, He charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So, with this curse from Joshua, you would think that it would be abandoned, at least for a period of time. The people were going to take this, this, uh, this curse from Joshua pretty seriously. I mean, they're seeing all the mighty things that are happening when Joshua was leading them, you think they would take this very seriously. So it was abandoned for a period of time. But we see in 1 Kings chapter 16, and verse 34, this is in the day of Ahab, the king of, uh, of Israel, a wicked king. It says, In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid his foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up his gates, its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So he'd lost his two sons. Now, we don't know how he lost his two sons, 
But in the process of building Jericho back up again, he lost, Joshua's curse came true. He lost his two sons. And then uh, we also see in Joshua chapter 3, uh, in verse 14 and 15, that when Joshua came into the land of Jericho, that it was harvest season. Joshua 3, 14. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priest who bore the Ark dipped into the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. And so during the harvest period, which is, that's the period that Joshua was coming into, and it was coming to Jericho, uh, to destroy this. So what we should see... Uh, we should see lots of pots full with grain, full with stuff that's been harvested. But what happened to the city after the walls fell down? What did they do to it? They burnt the city. So we should find our things that are burnt in the city. Lots of full pots of grain and things that are harvested during that period of time. So that's what we see. Those are the facts we see about Jericho from the Bible. Now I want to talk about some archaeological facts that we, we find in Jericho as they searched after this stuff. Now the first thing you have to understand is that um, Jericho, the old of Jericho, is called a Tel. I thought I heard the, the, the city named Tel Aviv. Okay? Tel Jericho. If you were to go to Jericho today, the Old Testament Jericho, you'd see a sign that says Tel Jericho. The word Tel is the Hebrew word, which means ruin heap. Okay? Ruin heap. And basically what it is, if you started out with land that's flat, and they build a city on top of it, and then it gets abandoned, or it gets destroyed in some way, they just build right on top of that again. And they build right on top of that again. Until they have this big mound of dirt. A man-made, unnatural mound of dirt. Okay, so that's what you see when you go to Old Testament Jericho. They did some archaeological digs. Let's put a couple more layers on there. They did some archaeological digs. And as they dig down through it like this, they get to see all of the layers there. All you ladies who like to make layer cakes, you know all about layers, right? You have a layer and then some icing and a layer and some icing and you have all these layers, right? If you were cut into a cake, you would see the layers. But until you cut into the cake, you don't see the layers. And so they cut into the cake of Jericho and they see these layers. And there's lots of things they found. Okay? What they see, uh, you know, if they, if they dig down to the layer, let's just say this layer right here is the Old Testament Jericho that Joshua is dealing with in Joshua 6. What they find there is they find a retaining wall right here. Okay? A retaining wall. Because, as Brother John rightly knows, if you put something on top of something that doesn't have a retaining wall, what's going to happen to it? It's going to sink down the hill. Okay, that's what you see with your pool out back. You have a retaining wall there. You have it in the driveway as well. If you don't have the retaining wall, the thing's just going to fall down. Especially you start putting heavy stuff on top of it. Okay? So they found a retaining wall here. And what they found all along here is a bunch of red mud bricks. Okay? And, the, and trying to figure out how all these red mud bricks got here, what they said was there used to be a big red brick wall right here. Okay, can you guys see that okay over there? 
a big red brick wall right there on top of the retaining wall. Okay? And what happened was at some point in time, the same layer that the, the Joswood layer is, it fell down. Somehow. They, they try to, you know, the secular guys try to say that it was an earthquake. Now, whether God used an earthquake or not, I have no idea. We do know that the wall fell down according to the Bible. And so, in the archaeological finds, all these red mud bricks are right here in front of it, and they form a kind of ramp there to get up over the retaining wall. And, you know, if, if you were to take uh, a cake, and let's say you had these two, this layer and this layer were vanilla, or white cake, or yellow cake, and these two layers were white or yellow cake, this layer was a cake. You would know the difference, wouldn't you? And so what we see in the layer of Joshua's time is a chocolate cake, per se. A burnt cake. We see a burnt layer of stuff here. And what they find in the remains of the of Joshua's layer is you find a lot of containers, pots, jars, full of grain to the top that's been completely burnt. So it's right around harvest time. So the facts we find when they do archaeological digs is that there's a retaining wall uh, at, in part of the tail. There's a lot of red mud bricks that fell down in front of, or beneath of, falling beneath itself, as the Hebrew word says, beneath of the retaining wall. It fell beneath itself. Okay? Uh, they developed a kind of ramp to get up into the city. As Joshua says, the man went straight up into the city. They had to go up. Uh, there was a burn layer at the time of Joshua's invasion of Jericho. And within the burn layer, there was lots of uh, jars that were full of grain that had been burnt. They also found in their study, these are secular archaeologists now, keep in mind. Now, there were some Christian ones too that would say the same thing, but secular archaeologists are finding that they say the wall fell down first and then there was a burning of the city. That's what they say from their archaeological digs. And then what they find on top of this burnt layer uh, during Joshua's time is they find an erosion layer on top of it. Which means it was abandoned for a long period of time. There was an erosion layer on top of it. And then what they find next is that the city was eventually rebuilt. Again. Um, now when, when they moved from the Old Testament site of Jericho to the New Testament site, which is about a half mile, mile away. I'm not real sure. I wasn't able to track that down completely. I'm going to say it was during the Babylonian captivity. When it came in and got destroyed that time, Jericho, that was the last time it was built. Okay? I wasn't able to pinpoint that, though. But hopefully you can see that from archaeology that it always backs up the Scripture. Always backs up the Scripture. That God's word is true, and every man's a liar. Now, there was one archaeologist who tried to say that the burn layer wasn't from the same period of time that Joshua uh, lived, and then I listened to some Christian archaeologists on the same situation, they said that she came to that conclusion because she didn't find certain pottery there that you'd find in other parts of the world during that time. And so because of a lack of that, she made her conclusion based upon silence. She made her conclusions on the Old Testament Jericho and, and how old that burnt layer was based upon not finding that pottery there. But as they continued to search, 
they found replicas of their, or, not replicas, but something that's similar to that same type of pottery, same design, same shape, everything, not exactly the same, in that very burnt layer that we're talking about. And so she, she didn't dig long and hard enough, and I wonder why she doesn't care about proving the Bible right. In fact, most of them care about proving the Bible wrong. That's what they're concerned about. And so what you see here from these, these situations is that the Bible and the scientific facts completely match up. That the walls were destroyed first, the wall fell beneath itself, beneath where it was, below, below itself, um, that there was a harvest time during that period, and that uh, there were lots of burnt jars, full jars of grain and crops that had been harvested, that uh, the wall fell down first, and then there was a burnt layer, and that it, while the city was abandoned for a period of time, and then there was uh, a rebuilding of it. And that's what you see in the scriptures as well. So hopefully that builds your faith up a little bit. But let's just say let's just say we didn't have these facts, and all of the secular archaeologists were saying the Bible was wrong. Who would you trust? We should say with the Lord, to whom shall we turn, Lord? You have the words of life. To whom shall we turn? That's what we should be able to say. No matter what the scientific facts people bring up that supposedly contradict the scriptures, we should always hold fast to the scriptures. Because if God is not true, if the scriptures aren't true, then there is no Christian God. Because we have no objective source to back our, our stuff up with. And if the Christian God is not true then how do we know anything? How do we know anything? Yes. I can point along that line, but that is that for hundreds of years they didn't have that archaeological evidence yes. for or against. Mm -hmm. So all the early saints, they weren't trusting what, what men could say about right. for or against the Bible, but, uh, you know, like Dr. Diamond and guys like that that are showing us these different scientific evidences in opposition to what the world says, they can have an effect on in fact, this was considered a great joke of the Bible because Jericho is never mentioned anywhere else. It's mentioned in the Bible when it comes to these Old Testament stories. It's not mentioned anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. And then they found that. And uh, they're now, uh, some of these secular archaeologists are now considering Jericho to possibly be one of the oldest cities ever. You know, usually they think it's Babylon. But I was saying maybe it's Jericho. But, you know, after the flood they wouldn't say after the flood, but that's what I'm saying, that this is probably one of the first cities that was settled. And uh, one of the reasons why that is, I studied Jericho, is that they have lots of good water, water sources, and one water source they have, I think it said it, it delivers 180,000 gallons an hour of water. And it's like this green oasis, look at it on an overview map, it's like a green oasis in the middle of a desert. That's what it's like. There's lots of crops there, lots of, I mean, it's just, a lot of, I read through the history, a lot of kings would make a, like an oasis there for themselves, uh, to go and, like, vacation, I guess you could say, uh, because of how, uh, how wonderful it was there. And so, so the new Jericho, uh, the old Jericho was, was kind of on the outskirts of this green spot, 
but as the old Jer the new Jericho is like in the middle, the center of where this is. And so the, the new Jericho is still around today. It's still inhabited today. It's a tourist spot. But the old Jericho is simply an archaeological dig. That's all it is. Uh, and so we, I, I think we make sense of this, going back to Matthew now, that they came out of the old Jericho. They were walking to the new Jericho. Um, and that's when, it's somewhere between these two blind men are crying out to Jesus. And so in the midst of all these facts, in the midst of all this uh, knowledge, uh, I guess we need to make some kind of application from the scripture to our life, huh? And uh, here's some questions I would have for you concerning these two blind men, even though the focus of this teaching has been on Jericho and the facts about that. Um, my question for you is this. In the midst of all the opposition, we have the crowd telling them to be quiet, warning them to be quiet, great multitudes are doing this. You know, my question for you is this. Can great multitudes shut you up for Jesus? Can they shut you up? When you're crying out, not necessarily for Jesus, but um, not to Jesus, but for Jesus, can great multitudes shut you up? Or are you like Jeremiah, where the the word of God burns in your bones like a great fire, and you have to let it out? Don't let the multitudes drown you out. You know, and this same multitudes who were telling them to be quiet, they switched around two seconds later, and they said, "Okay, he's calling for you. Go see him. Be of good cheer." And the same multitude who is cheering for Jesus, we'll see here next week for the triumphal entry, they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, highest, is the same crowd who turned on him and said, crucify him, crucify him, not too long after that. And so don't, don't let the crowds deter you. Not only from crying out for Jesus, but crying out to Jesus. You know, oftentimes in, in, in church services I've been in, I, I, I sense a little bit of uh, uh, shame or nervousness when it comes to worshiping the Lord. And when it comes to worshiping the Lord, we should do it openly. And it should be as if there's no one else in the room. Who cares what anyone else thinks about how you sound? Who cares what anyone else thinks about what you look like? It's just you and him. And that's the way these two blind men were. They weren't Christians. They didn't have the Holy Spirit of God living in them. Christ hadn't even shed his blood yet for them. And they cried to him with a messianic title, Son of David... And they wouldn't let the multitude shut them up. For any reason. Now, of course, they had motives. Their motive was their healing. But they wanted it bad enough they wouldn't shut up about it. They wouldn't shut up about it. And that's the way we should be. We should want the presence of God so much that we won't shut up about it. We'll make a joyful noise to the Lord. And as we go about our Christian walk, we shouldn't become more quiet we should become louder we shouldn't become more tame in that sense we should become more open in our worship of him not this little whisper stuff that we hear sometimes just giving the Lord what he deserves not that worship necessarily comes from your vocal cords or from your lungs because there's some who don't have vocal cords to speak it comes from your heart but if it's coming from your heart, it'll show on the outside, friends. It'll show on the outside. And look what happened when they got their eyes touched and he had compassion on them. They did what? They followed him. They had a proper response. 
had a proper response to it. They followed him. That's what we should do. When the Lord blesses us, we should follow him. We should walk after him and do what he wants us to do. In fact, you know, as you read through these this account, these accounts of this, when the crowd told them to be quiet, they cried out all the more. They cried out all the more. You know, if someone tries to talk over top of you, get a bullhorn. Cry out all the more. Don't let them stop you. Don't back down from the the ones who want to drown you out, because even though there's ones who are mocking and scoffing and they don't want to hear, obviously. There are some who need to hear who are not part of that group. Alright. That's, that's what rises up in me. I tell you, when I worship the Lord, I just want to not care what anyone else says thinks or sees who cares about what they think or say or think I care what God says what God thinks what God sees for an audience of one not for an audience of 30 not for an audience of 100 or 1000 for an audience of one
Oh, it's still in the jars. The jars are still intact. Yeah. I don't know how they know what was in it. I know, I saw pictures of it. Of the jars filled to the top of uh, some kind of grain or whatever it was. Maybe the density of it would just be like burned on the top well the jars were still intact I mean these are clay jars and so the jars themselves didn't burn all the way but, and clay resist, resist, yeah. uh, doesn't burn up it provides a measure of protection too, so sure <clears throat> there was a I can't remember the fellow's name that does that uh, archaeological ministry over in, in Israel he takes groups around and shows them different sites Yeah, I mean, if you don't have the time or the money to go over there yourself, that'd probably be the be next best thing to do. Is a someone who knows what they're talking about and lead you through it. Uh, and he seemed to—I mean, you sent me the clip of him. He seemed yeah. to know what he was talking about. I'd never watched him myself. I wanted to order series of documents to him to see if they might have seen it. the world may know. That the world may Yes, that the world may know. That's it. That's well, actually, now we know the order of them, because we've been looking at it. I yeah, I have no idea of the theology and what kind of thinking he has. It, to me, I always just thought, well, the guy's, you know, he seems pretty pure in the way he, he talks about the Bible. And he gives a lot of spiritual applications. There's something, one thing I did object to, I can't remember what it was, though. When she, the video clip she showed me. Yeah, I haven't seen it in so long. I, I <laughs> But you just be greens. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of good information in there too. That's that's better than the, the tours that a lot of them will take you on. They'll yeah. just take you to all the all the tourist places where you can buy trinkets. Right. Buy right yeah. keychains and yeah. You got to be fit to do that. Well, they walk the mountains. Yeah, to get to the real places, it's not. I mean, it's you're not deep. going to the, like the churches that the Catholic Church put on all the right. places. You know, right. 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 You're, you're, you're going to be traveling. <laughs> Where Constantine's wife says this is bad, right. that's this. Right. <laughs> yeah, here you can put your hand in uh, the place where the cross went in the ground. Uh, you can yeah. touch it. Yeah, supposedly. Yeah, you can put your feet at the Church of the Ascension. You can put your feet where Jesus' feet, lift, where he lifted oh, off. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, and it, and it pressed in the ground and he there? shot off in the air. And you I can get your real. feet in the dirt and you can put your feet in there and have a moment with the Lord. Yeah, my, my a friend, a pastor friend of mine is over there right now. And I, I looked through some of the pictures. I'm like, he's, he's saying what they are. I'm like, no, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> that's not that. That's not that. That's not that. I don't think so. That's what he said too. That's a Catholic little idol. Yeah. I mean, no, no one even has really has Mount Sinai right. They all have the wrong site for Mount Sinai. Right. 
watched the, that video. You watched that? Yeah. Yeah. It fits it perfectly. And it's, that's neat. The whole mountain burnt. Right. I got the altar out there. Yeah. And there's, there's like barbed wire around everything. Because yeah. the, the Muslims, they know. Yeah. They know what it is. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah, the rock with the water came out of. Yeah. yeah. That was pretty Shows neat. there's. I mean, there's no s- sign of water anywhere. Yeah. All these signs of this water erosion on this rock <laughs> in the middle of the desert. <laughs> if anyone wants to borrow, I ha- we have that series. Yeah. So I, I have it, but it's all. It's war- I, got, I wore it out. It's all scratched. I got Mount Sinai. I got the Exodus, and I got the Ark of the Covenant. It's a three-part series. Oh, Same guy. Okay. I think we only see one Bob, Bob Yes. Yeah. Cornuke? Cornuke, yeah. Cornuke? Canuck. 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 Eh? Bob Canuck, eh? Like ass or ass. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> or like, uh, I, did a, I did a video recently on, on uh, Calvin's words. And at one point, I edited it out so you're not going to know, but... At one point in time, I, I think I said uh, drawer, and I meant to say, or something like that. What word was it? It's something with a W in it, and I, I, I said it like it was O-U-R instead of A-W-E-R or whatever it was. I said, I'm going to edit that part out and, and put the right one in there. Yeah, they'll say, oh, look, you can't even pronounce the word right. You're not a good source. <laughs> you know. Oh, okay. smaller than the rest of ours. You would have more free tickets than we would. We'll see it one day. Oh, no, it'll be a few years of saving. Yeah, we'll see the new one. We'll see the new one. Just, just ruins. It'd be nice to see it, but I'm looking forward to the new one better. I, I think I will go there someday. I don't know how it'll be, but... That's right. Yeah, it wouldn't be. I mean, I might go on a tour a little bit too, but I'd be there to preach more than anything. That's what I want to do. It really would be, without knowing the language, would be pretty, be much more effectual with knowing the language. Well, I mean, all of them. I think it's just about all of them speak English. Jewish people. Yeah. 
you can memorize a gospel message in, in uh, Hebrew or something. Right. Yeah. Work on it for Hebrew's a tough, man. Yeah. I have a hard time with Hebrew when I'm looking at the, the words because of the symbols. There's no comparison between theirs and ours. In Greek, there's at least a comparison between the two, so I have something to relate it with. My friend who learned Hebrew said that Hebrew was easier in Greek, in his opinion. So. There was at one point time I knew one guy who was over there from the Great News Network. He was over there mostly for work, though, but he was like a local leader over there with the Great News Network. I'm not sure how much evangelism he was engaging in. What's that guy's name? You know what I'm talking about? Kind of had a little bit of longer hair in this picture. I don't know. I don't think he's over there anymore. Nope, not that I know of. Have any questions or anything you want to add? Yeah, I think the, the scientists are always are always catching up to the Bible later. Yeah. You, know? you can't put your trust in man, right? You right. can't put your trust in man. Right. Even if you don't understand something in the Word of God, you just just wait on the Lord. That's right. Just wait on, just wait on the Lord. Put that in the file in your mind to for further waiting for further information because sure. a lot of times uh, you know when man makes his declaration then he ha- he has to go and change it later. Well, yes. I was wrong. God was right. right. You know. So when man says something and you make a declaration that you know, something is wrong with the word of God, you just say no. I'm going to wait upon the Lord. But, uh, man is man is wrong. Let every man be a liar. Right. God be true. Yeah. And you, you could you could do a whole study on that. Right. All the times men were wrong. Right. Um, and recently, I was I was uh, listening to David David Wilkerson, and he was talking about Voltaire, mm. and that how he said a hundred years. The French guy. Yeah. Battle be gone. He said. Be gone in and then in his house, they built the front yeah. press. Hundred years in, from a hundred years of his life, right? right? That the Bible would cease to exist, and then. Uh, he died. The Bible didn't die. And then they started printing Bibles uh, in his house, uh, right. his home. Uh, his former home, yeah. Yeah. But then he also said that in uh, World War II, uh, a stray, a bomb hit his house and blew it up. So his house didn't exist anymore. So 
God was done used this house for miracles. Um, and that's interesting because God says that in, in Proverbs 1 that he, he laughs at people in foolishness right. like that. So God will mock people and you know print Bibles out of the man's house that said 100 years from his lifetime there would be no more Bible. I think God's mocking that. And then when he's done, he just blew it up and gone. And as soon as Voltaire died, he knew he was wrong. Yeah. So, can't listen to these men. Yeah. And that was just 50 years ago, growing up in the 60s. Then, Mac Revolution was like 150,000 years. That's when we progressed from there to where we are now. And now it's 4.5 billion years. Since all of this started, and, and uh, aged a lot since then. Yeah, it's uh, the going back to them changing their mind mm -hmm. and realizing how more and more evidence reveals more and more of the folly that they're they're promoting. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's interesting to, to see that over my lifetime. Mm -hmm. yeah. Our lifetime. I remember James Kennedy. Did a message on uh, <coughs> God's word called it the anvil, the right. anvil of God's yes. word. Good. And he, you listen to that one yeah, too. And he said, "Man's hammers, man's right. hammers break, but God's anvil stands. They right. smash away at it with their hammers, and their, yeah. their hammers break. You know, but God's word is like an anvil. You know, that will break no matter how much you smash on it. <coughs> hammers shatter, break, and you can see that through history. And, uh, praise God, some of these men end up bowing the knee to the Lord." Like uh, Frank Morrison, that, he wrote that Who Moved the Stone? He was trying to disprove, disprove uh, the resurrection. And he ends up writing the book Who Moved the Stone. He changed it. He was going to write a book against the resurrection. He ended up writing the book for the resurrection because he got saved trying to prove it. Yeah, and he's struggled with the same kind of testimony. He's in college and journal student and lawyer. And he was trying to disprove the Bible and then get saved by yeah. his research. Yeah. yeah, same with Josh McDowell.